Okay, well, we are going to, this is week two of the fundamentals of the family. And like I said, this is something that, you know, we're, we're teaching through right now. And, um, and it has a, a kind of a, a purpose beyond this class uh, to create something that we can uh, use at the church and continually teach uh, that will, Lord willing, be a, a blessing uh, for, for all of us, uh, for, for the family of Christ here, uh, for the body here. Um, and so um, I told you last week, uh, you're kind of the guinea pigs, and this is new for me in a sense. Uh, what we're trying to do with the notes is develop something. I, I told Jeff, Jeff's helping me uh, with all this on the back end, give me feedback and stuff like that. I'd love feedback from you as well um, because, uh, you know, by, by week eight, we'll probably have kind of figured it out and then have to <laughs> go back and, and change things. Even, even this week, I think we refined it a little more from last week. Um, but the idea behind it, like I said, is uh, to create something that we can use again and again and again, uh, possibly something like Fundamentals of the Faith, you know, how we have people sign up, and then we start a class every time we have 20 people sign up, and uh, we just think this would be a blessing for the church. So it's helping me uh, as I teach through this, because this is different than you know, just a normal, like, uh, exposing scripture and, and preaching, uh, and I'm trying to, uh, to do a better job of slowing down, which I know is a joke, <laughs> but I am working on it, <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, hopefully this week the notes, the notes are a little more organized, and uh, there's less blanks, and hopefully this is helpful. I also want to explain at the very end, I have homework, and again, it's almost like a test, <laughs> but you are welcome to to try out the homework. Part of it is just to see, is this too much, you know? Uh, secondly, you know, it's, it's when you're in it, you're always, anytime you're studying anything, you know, like I said, whether you're just expositing, you know, Romans 1, a few verses in Romans 1, or whether I'm reading all these different books and putting things together, and I'm gleaning from this. I'm growing in this. I'm seeing my own failures at home and striving to be a better husband and father and all this sort of stuff. But as that happens, then you just want to share everything with everybody. Read this. You've got to read this. Oh, you should go read this. You've got to listen to this, you know. And, and, and I know that that's impractical. Uh, uh, but these are just like, like I said, some of the things that I, as I was going through this that I just thought, man, these would be great if, if you were able this week to do these things before you showed up next week. Because that's also going to be part of this, this class is we want to assign homework each week. Uh, kind of like fundamentals of the faith, that you go home, you work on stuff, and then you bring it back, um, and either to discuss it and or just to uh, further uh, your your understanding or growth or point you to good resources. So anyway, like I put some things on the back. So I would love if anybody wants to try it. You know, there's a few things that would be, you know, like when it says read chapter 4, uh, like I didn't even explain the fact that that comes from... Uh, Oh, yeah, I did. The Christian Home Reading. There's a book called The Christian Home by Paul Shirley. The more I've been reading different resources, I'm really drawn to this. And first thing, because it's very small. It's short. Uh, it's, it's kind of it's precise. It's kind of what Richard just talked about. Just clear, precise, and simple. Um, and uh, really, you can tell this came out of probably his own study through Ephesians 5. And as he hit this uh, in his church. But uh, the book is, um, it's, it's, it's good. It's clear. Um, and it starts with kind of what we talked about last week, you know. Uh, just that you, you have to be born again, spirit-filled, submissive, like, um, and then goes into the, the roles of husband and, and wife and all that. 
So there's some just real, there's some good stuff there. Uh, this chapter four actually is going to deal with what we're going to talk about today. We're actually going to jump out of Ephesians and, and look at Genesis two and just look at what marriage is. But in his chapter four, he talks about the vital union and he's talking about the oneness of the husband and the wife, which is coming out of, of what it says in Genesis two. And then what he says in uh, Ephesians five, I think 30 or 31 uh, that, you know, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to the, his wife, and they will become one flesh. And so we're going to talk about that today in our session. But, but like I said, that's kind of like the homework. So, uh, you know, possibly moving forward, we'll have uh, everyone read that book alongside of, of the study. And then, you know, just uh, – and then the other thing, I, and I, this is something that came out of um, – when we used to do – I think I told you about that last week. In our old church, we would do a thing called uh, – uh, marriage tune-up, and our pastor would always assign a date each week. You know what I mean? And so that was, that was very helpful. for if, It forces you to, even if your date is sitting on the couch together after the kids go to bed, you know, you don't have to go out to eat, but you purposely talk through something, or you purposely pray about something, you purposely uh, talk to your spouse about something. There's a couple of things I think that's good for. First thing, it just forces you to not only think about spending time together this week purposefully, and then talk through something, but sometimes it's good to have someone say, hey, you guys should talk about this because you're at home going, I don't know how I can bring that up. But you could say, well, the homework says. <laughs> and, like, and then you can talk about some, some issues and, or some things that would be very beneficial for, for your family. Does that make sense? And so, I, I mean, I walked through that. And I was very thankful when we had to walk through something like that. And so, again, this is kind of, again, my rendition of, you know, if, if I was – talking to my wife about the things that we just studied, these are the things that I would be like, I, let's talk about this. This is, this is gold. And this is some of the stuff that me and my wife did talk about this week uh, because it was so good. So, um, so anyway, uh, yeah, so that's the homework. So I just want to explain. That's different from last week, but like moving forward, I want that to be part of it. But like I said, for you guys, um, it's more of like testing it out, trying it out, but I would love feedback, you know? Um, even when I originally did it, I sent it to Jeff ahead of time, and he's like, that's, those, that's a lot of scripture to memorize in one week. And I was like, it's good to know, you know? So, uh, so anyway. All right. So we are at session two this week, and we're going to call this, uh, the, I, I didn't put slides up because I think you got everything that I would have put on the slide in front of you on the paper. Uh, we're calling this the fundamental definition of marriage. And like I said, we're going to kind of... Uh, not, not get out, I mean, really, it's kind of jumping ahead to Ephesians 5, uh, 31 and 32, um, but we're, I'm going to take us back to Genesis 2, when God created marriage, and we're going to look at what is marriage, and uh, basically, how does God define marriage, how did God create marriage, uh, what does God say in, that, in, in those verses that ought to, that, that ought to be fundamental principles and, and a fundamental definition of, of how we look at marriage. And again, there's nothing I don't think we're going to say here that you may not have heard before if you've been in the church, but there are things that you may hear and go, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not w- practicing that uh, at home, or, you know, we need to revisit this and talk about it. So just to review last week, if you weren't here, we basically talked about the fundamental foundations of a godly family. We said in order to even begin to practice the things that we're going to talk about, there's, there's some things that have to be uh, foundational, groundwork that's there. First and foremost, that you are born again. You must be in Christ, and Christ must be 
in you uh, in order to apply these things. It doesn't mean that an unbeliever can't take principles from the Word of God, and that can be beneficial to his marriage. It can be. But ultimately, there is something greater and bigger going on. And if you're not born again, you know, even having a great marriage is just a Band-Aid. Like, uh, ultimately, you're going to have to stand before God and before Christ and give you know, a, a testimony uh, of, or, or basically stand before him in, in, in judgment uh, unless he is in you. And so, again, there's just a bigger thing. And on top of that, like, if you don't have Christ in you and you don't have the Spirit of God in you to help discern the truth of God's Word, then even this stuff we're talking about is, is, is not going to be clear uh, and, and beneficial in the way that the Lord has uh, proclaimed it for his children. So again, you need Christ. Secondly, you've got to be associated with the church. We looked at Ephesians 2 and 3, talked about the fact uh, that, that God created the church, called us out of the darkness into his life, uh, or in his light, made us alive together in Christ, and created us for good works. And then that comes in the context of the body of Christ. In fact, you can't be a faithful Christian and not be an active part of the body of Christ because uh, uh, being a part of the church is first and foremost God's design and secondly the the things that he calls us to be as Christians uh, happen in the context of the body of Christ to edify and to admonish one another to grow and, and to love one another and be patient with one another bear with one another uh, proclaim to each other the danger of sin and the greatness of Christ I mean everything we talk about when we talk about the one another's uh, when we talk about uh, our, our roles of edifying and encouraging and equipping and, um, and, and all those things, those happen within the body of Christ. And so, again, same thing with your family. If you want a godly family that is, that is, um, that is founded on Christ, you have to be an active part of the church. Thirdly, you must be uh, a- uh, actively walking uh, in um, growing in sanctification, walking in holiness, walking in righteousness. Again, because what we're talking about here is just the application of those principles in the family. But these are things that that should um, uh, define our whole life, you know? I mean, we talk about wives submitting to their husbands, husbands laying down their lives for their wives. But those exact same principles are said elsewhere in regard to, to everyone. I mean, you should be laying down your life for anyone. You should be uh, loving even your enemies, you know? Um, uh, we should be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, talking about all of us. So, again, the, the husband-wife relationship is a unique relationship. We'll talk about that today. But the things that we're told to practice or the way that God has established that, those principles should be at play in our lives in, in, in the workplace, uh, in the church, uh, with our children, uh, with friends, and even with enemies uh, in, in, in ways. So, Again, you must be walking in sanctification. And then also we said submission. Uh, you have to be submissive to Christ and submissive to others. And we talked about the, the, the glory and, and, and the, the greatness of this character trait. In our culture, submission is almost like a curse word. But in the Bible... It is the definition of Christ. This is what he is. He says, I, I speak nothing of my own initiative. All that the Father tells me to do, I do. I mean, he, he always did his Father's will. And then when it comes to his brethren, he laid down his life for us. Again, as husbands, we're going to be called to, to imitate his self-sacrificial submission, laying we should do the same thing to our wife. And so, again, that ought to define your life. So if you're not being submissive, if you uh, continually push back against authority and you continually push back against um, admonishment or, or um, 
uh, counsel or whatever, then that's going to play out in your marriage. And so you must be a submissive person, submissive both to God and his word and to others in order to, to live this at home in the way that Christ has called us. So salvation, association with the church, sanctification, submission, those are kind of the foundational principles. Then we can start talking about, okay, so what has God called us as husbands, as wives, as parents, uh, those sort of things. But before we, yeah. I did, yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Just Betty Ann, remind me. <laughs> Print out some copies. <laughs> yes, I can do that. Um, uh, but so before we dive into uh, the commands, like like I said, which would be next if you're just following through Ephesians, Ephesians five twenty one, be subject to one another, all of us in the fear of Christ, and then he says, wives to your husbands, husbands likewise uh, to your wives in these ways. Uh, before we dive into that, like I said, I think it would be good to, uh, to look at the, the definition of marriage and what marriage is, its origin, its purpose, uh, and its definition, ordained by God in his word. And so we're going to look at, we're going to, the, the, the main text is Genesis two eighteen through uh, 25, and we're going to look at that today. Um, but real quick, uh, one, one of the things I was reading this week is a book called When Sinners Say I Do, which is a, a great book. Um, and it says, uh, Dave Harvey in this book says, God created the marriage program. He wrote the operating manual, uh, and he is faithful to explain it. So again, if we want to know what marriage is, the best place to go is the word of God and see what did God say marriage is. Because um, he's the inventor. He's the one that, that, that created it. He's the one who, and, and only reliable and trustworthy authority on the subject of marriage. Uh, as its inventor, he knows how it works, how to make it last. And as the Lord over marriage, he has given all we need for life and godliness and marriage in his word. The Bible is the foundation for a thriving marriage. Um, and marriage was not just invented by God. It belongs to God. That's a good point. He has a unique claim over its design and purpose and goals. Uh, it actually exists for him more than it exists for you and me and our spouses. Again, I mean, you know, I don't want to talk about all the, you know, the different definitions of marriage and how the culture is trying to, you know, recreate what marriage is and define marriage. I mean, you can go down that path forever and we can talk about how they don't even have the authority and ability to do that. But the point, let's just go back to the start. God created marriage. God defined marriage. And that's what marriage is, period. And, and marriage has more to do with him than it does to, to do with us, in a sense. Um, and um, it's a blessing for us. We're going to see that. It's a good relationship. It was given to us because of God's desire for us to be blessed. And at the same time, many things about marriage uh, reflect him and become, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, a teaching mechanism to show us more and more the greatness of who he is and what his ultimate plan is. And we talked about that last week, pulling out, looking at the whole picture and going, this is what it's all about. So today we're going to look at the biblical definition of marriage laid out by the inventor of marriage and the Lord of marriage. Um, and uh, before we do that, though, kind of like what Richard just did there, is uh, so what does definition mean? The definition of definition. I thought this was kind of funny. I looked up definition in the, bio, or in the, in the dictionary. <laughs> and the definition of definition means the act of defining. That doesn't help. <laughs> uh, but if you keep reading, it, it, gets, it, gets help, it helps. It says it's, it's making something definite or distinct or clear. It's stating or setting forth the meaning of something with, with clarity. You're trying 
trying to explain or identify the nature of something or the essential qualities of something, and you're describing it, um, or you're laying down clearly and specifically in order to determine, this was good, the boundaries and extent of something. That's what we're going to do with marriage today. We want to clearly look at what the Lord has articulated to figure out what are the boundaries, what is the extent, what is the nature, and what are the essential qualities of marriage. Because, again, it's kind of like what Richard said in there. If you, if you miss the starting point, then even your method of, of determining whether or not you're uh, uh, accomplishing your goal will be off as well, the metrics of what you're using. And so same thing with marriage. You may look at your marriage and go, this is a good marriage. But your marriage may not be how God defines marriage. And so it's like, so what does God say marriage is? And then we can start going, so husbands, wives, parents, children, does that make sense? Um, and so that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to look at uh, the fundamental principles of marriage. We're going to look at the fundamental purpose of marriage. And then we're going to look at uh, the, the priorities or how that, uh, the, the pattern of how that plays out in marriage. So the first thing we're going to look at is the fundamental principles of marriage. Um, and uh, I have a little footnote there at the bottom. I just wanted to give credit where credit's due. Many of the concepts of this chapter have come from three main resources. Like as I was looking at this and pulling things together and going, this is gold, this is gold. Um, first thing is called Building Marriages God's Way. Uh, it comes from uh, Faith Church in Lafayette, Indiana. It's just a, 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 like a, it's actually back there on the back if you want to see it, if you want to um, purchase that and just look through that. Um, there's another one called Strengthening Your Marriage by Wayne Mack, another good resource. And, and they're basically just book or, or, or manual forms of what we're also striving to do here. Uh, and then the other thing is actually um, our Faith Community Church premarital counseling workbook that we give to couples when we do premarital counseling, um, which, again, you can start seeing the overlap. First thing, because anything that's good teaching is going to come right back down to the same scriptures and have the same, the same application. Uh, but you start seeing how uh, our circle of churches, I mean, you, you see, you know, the, the like-mindedness on top of, of one another. So, again, like I said, this stuff is... Uh, this is not all um, original, which is good. Actually, they used to tell us in seminary, if it's new, it's untrue, and if it's true, it's not new. And I was like, that's good. <laughs> um, all right, so starting out, marriage is an exclusive and unique relationship established, orchestrated, and ordained by God himself before the existence of sin. God, in his perfect wisdom, created Adam with a need for a helper that would correspond only to him. He took a piece of Adam and formed Eve with his own hands from Adam's rib. And then he brought Eve to Adam, presented her to him as his perfectly suited companion and counterpart. Yahweh God, the creator of all things, very good and perfect, created marriage very good and perfect. And for this reason, the Lord says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, that's one of the things that a lot of times people talk about uh, uh, marriage, and even even within the biblical context, marriage is a result of the fall, or the roles of man and wife are a result of sin. And then, but it's not. It's a marriage was ordained by God. The roles were established before sin was even existent in our creation. Uh, this is something that God created for us that is very good. Uh, marriage is also created by God so that man could better understand the love that God has for us and that Christ has for his church. We'll talk about that. In the Old Testament, the Lord describes his relationship with Israel through the illustration of marriage. We'll talk about that. In the New Testament, the Lord describes his relationship with the church through the uh, model of marriage. 
Uh, marriage is a unique relationship because there is no other relationship that we can know or experience in this life that better explains the love that God has for his chosen people. Again, we use other relationships as analogies. You know, we're adopted into the family of God. We're called children of God. He is our father. So God's given us relationships for us to understand God, how he works, how our relationship with him works. But marriage is unique, unique in a way that none of those other relationships, you know, friend of Christ, son of God, brother of Christ, those are relationship terminologies that help us understand uh, our relation with him. But marriage is unique, and we'll talk about the uniqueness of that today. So um, basically, that's what we want to look at today, the biblical foundations of marriage, so we can understand how marriage exemplifies Christ, how it glorifies God, and how we can live uh, in submission to him, striving to live our lives in the marriage relationship, in the family context, both with our children, our spouse, um, in a way that, that exemplifies the love of Christ, the submission of Christ, um, and, uh, and glorifies Christ. So uh, the first part here, the marriage relationship, we're going to look at a, a few things here that just talk about what the marriage relationship is. Um, and the first thing is that marriage is a, your blank is profound relationship established by God for his glory. It's a profound relationship. Um, first and foremost, marriage is, or the marriage relationship is the most fundamental and basic institution in our society. Uh, but what is unique and profound about marriage is on top of that, marriage reflects, like we said, something about the relationship of God to his people and his people to, to him. Uh, in Genesis two eighteen and 22, uh, it says, then Yahweh God said, by the way, uh, a lot of my, I've, I've been starting to read the LSB translation. Super good. You should check it out. So these quotes are from the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible translation. That's why it uses the, the name Yahweh over and over. So then Yahweh God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman and he brought her to the man. Again, there's no other relationship like that. There's no other thing like that that God established. And it's the fundamental and basic uh, 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 institution in society. And God took from Adam, made something out of Adam, brought the woman to the man, and they became one again, if you want to kind of say it that way. And then in Ephesians 5, you see the, uh, Paul talk about this. And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, quoting Genesis uh, uh, two um, and says and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh and he says this mystery is great but I am speaking with reference to Christ and to the church so again even when we look at our roles as husbands and wives uh, it, it's it's a reflection of of something that that we have in Christ uh, and it, it is a profound relationship it's a profound thing that the Lord has created. Uh, There's a quote there by Paul Shirley out of the Christian home that says, Marital union was designed by God to illustrate gospel union with Christ. At creation, God ordained marital union so that his people could better understand the faithful union with Christ that he would one day reveal. That's, again, you talk about profound. Part Part of this relationship and how he founded it was to show his children for all eternity the relationship that Jesus Christ would have to the church and we would have with him. And that is, that's an amazing thing. And so marriage, uh, that's part of, of the principles of marriage. Letter B, marriage is a covenant relationship. It's a covenant relationship. 
Marriage is a solemn and binding arrangement that should not be minimized or manipulated. It's, it's not something that, that you can come in and out of. It's, it's, a, it's a binding arrangement. Proverbs 2.17 talks about that. Um, they're talking about the adulteress who forsakes the close companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, speaking of the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship. In Malachi 2.14, in Malachi 2, if you read that, uh, basically the, the Israelites are calling out for God to, to help them and to bless them. And, and Malachi tells them, he's not going to listen to your prayers. And the reason is, is because of this. Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against you, whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, you're not, you're not living with your spouse, with your wives in an understanding way. You're not loving your wives and living in a covenant relationship that you, that you vowed to live at the beginning in the way I ordained it. And so you can't call out to God for blessing and call out to God to help your, your land and to help your, uh, your, your city and to help you when you're living uh, in, with your wife in, in a way that is not ordained by him. That's, that he calls it treacherous here. Again, 1 Peter 3, 7 says the same thing. It comes with a warning, right? Live with your wife in an understanding way as a uh, fellow heir of the grace of life, as a treasure vessel. Um, and then he says, um, and if you don't, uh, your prayers will be hindered. You know, And you can read that and be like, oh, well, I guess he just won't listen to my prayers for a little while or something. But if you look at what hindered prayer always is biblically, it means that the Lord set his face against you that he's angry at you and he's coming after you in his discipline if you belong to him. But, but again, we can't think that we can live uh, with animosity at home. We can hold bitterness or grudges in our hearts towards our spouse and we can have a great relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. You know? If we're not loving our wives, uh, if we're not submitting to our husbands, then we're automatically uh, actually setting our face against God. And, uh, and so it's a very important um, point. Marriage is a covenant relationship ordained by God. Next, letter C, marriage is a, uh, a good relationship. In Genesis 2.18, God said it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. So what is very good is for him to have um, a, a helper suitable for him. Uh, and then Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from Yahweh. It doesn't mean being single is not good. It just means that marriage is good. Does that make sense? Being single is ordained by God just the same. Uh, the Lord uh, uh, ordains singleness for some never to be married, for some uh, even uh, through um, a spouse dying um, and, and uh, being a widow or a widower. I mean, there's, there's singleness uh, that, that many of us uh, in life, that's God's orchestration and ordained plan. And that is a great thing as well. Like, and the Lord talks about that. I mean, the, the, the fact that you can have um, unhindered and... and um, uh, 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 devotion to him um, and, uh, and the capacity to, to uh, obey him and follow him in a unique way that you can't uh, in a marriage relationship. So again, we're not saying not ma- a lack of marriage is not good. We're saying that marriage is good. That's all we're saying, that the Lord ordained it and he made it good. And that was part of what he even said in his definition. Letter D, marriage is an exclusive and pure relationship. Exclusive and pure Again, you can't be married to two people, and you shouldn't be looking at someone else's wife. Uh, he says in Exodus 20, uh, 14 and 17, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not cover your neighbor's house, nor cover your neighbor's wife. 
Proverbs 5, 15 through 17, again, the warning about the adulteress. He says, drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for you alone and not for strangers with you. Marriage is to be pure. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Marriage is an exclusive relationship, a lifelong covenant commitment between one man and one wife. Um, and, and the Bible has many things uh, to say about the exclusivity and purity of marriage. Actually, I wrote down a, a few things here. I got this from our premarital stuff that we talk to uh, with new couples all the time, but this is something that we all need a reminder of and, and examining our own marriages. Uh, marriage involves a commitment to purity in several areas, and the blanks here, well, let me, I'll do them one by one. The first is in thought. You need purity and exclusivity in your thought life. Uh, most of the battles against the flesh happen right here, you know? I mean, there are things that come out of our lips or, or, or manifest in relationships or, or uh, in some outburst of anger or something like that. But the majority of Christians are fighting a battle in their mind all the time. That's where the battle wages. And so what you put in influences you. Uh, what you put in is going to, to influence the way that you think, the way that you, uh, you know, whether it's your marriage or the world or whatever it is. So this includes everything that you put in, literature, TV, movies, whatever it may be, the settings that you're in, the people that you're around. And the Lord talks about this in Matthew 5, 27 to 30. He says, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, right? So that's the exclusivity and purity of marriage. But he says, uh, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, it's not just the act of adultery. that's the sin. It's the thought. It's, it's what's happening in your heart and in your mind. Um, and so... Uh, he, the, the admonition here is if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. He goes on to say if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it away. The point being is you, you go after anything that would challenge the exclusivity and purity of the marriage relationship with full force and might to the extreme. Like whatever it may be, you get it out of your life. Remove yourself from that place. Get away from those people. Stop looking at that stuff. It, 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 you cut it out of your life and you get it out of your life uh, because you're striving for purity and you're striving for exclusivity in this covenant relationship. Job 31.1, Job talking about as he's examining his own heart and, and, and looking for, for ways that he may have sinned against God. He says, I have cut a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze at a virgin? In other words, I, he, is, he, is, he has vowed to himself not to put eyes on anyone else other than his wife. And it's just, and, and, and what he's describing there is, is the, the, the outward manifestation of an inward vow, an inward fight against any kind of impurity, any kind of lust, uh, any kind of things that would challenge uh, the exclusivity uh, of his affections towards his wife. Um, secondly, in action. So you have to fight for purity in thought, fight for purity in action. And again, you got to strive to make sure you're not promoting, first and foremost, uh, unfaithfulness in yourself or in others. You know, uh, there's things that you may do. Part of your personality. You know, I, you, you talk to people that are huggers, right? You know, but but your 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 sign of affection and, and brotherly or sisterly love may be something that provokes something in someone else's heart or mind. You just got to be careful. You know, you got to think before you. Before you, you act, you know. And so, again, it doesn't mean that you have to go around being scared. You just have to strive for purity and exclusivity, both in the way that you think and in the way that you act. That may also be not associating with immoral people who profess Christ. 
There's a big warning about that in 1 Corinthians, um, being wise about avoiding the appearance of evil. Uh, Ephesians 5, 3 through 4 says, Sexual immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. You don't want to even be associated with it. You don't want to put yourself in a situation that anyone ever even calls into question the exclusivity of your marriage and the purity of, of your marriage relationship. Does that make sense? And that can, I mean, men on business trips and, and, and situations that you, that you may get in, your boss may say, here, we're going to have a meeting in this place or you're going to go to this place. And you just have to say, I, I, can't, I can't be named amongst that. And I don't want anyone to even wonder if, if they were to see me in association with that, that there's any doubt that, that, that I am exclusively devoted to my wife and there's purity in, in our marriage relationship. Does that make sense? And so sometimes that, that, makes, that means you're making decisions that, that could, that could you know, cost you. First Corinthians 5, 11 through 13, again, he says, I'm writing with you not to associate with any so-called believer if he is sexually immoral person, greedy, idolater, or any, a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Remove the wicked man from amongst yourself. So you look at within the church, there should be purity in the body. I mean, the, the, the body of Christ is to be a reflection of, of that same thing. And so he's saying here, again, it's not saying that we're not going to sin. It's saying someone that's living in immoral sin, and then also proclaiming to be a follower of Christ. And he's saying, you, first and foremost, you've got to rebuke that person. And then if that person is going to continue to walk in that sin, then you, you, then you disassociate with that kind of person because you don't even want to be named amongst that kind of stuff. Um, and so, again, this is very serious to the Lord. Paul talks about this. By God's wonderful grace, it looks like in 2 Corinthians, possibly this guy did repent. And he's saying bring them back into the body of Christ. It doesn't mean that there's not repentance. It doesn't mean that there's not a possibility of redemption and forgiveness and all that. But there can't be impurity and purity. You know what I mean? And, again, you just play that out in the marriage relationship. I mean, you know, it's one thing if, if a husband or a wife sins or looks at something or does something and they repent and there's change, and there's restoration, and there's a, 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 a grow, growing trust. But if you had a spouse, it's like, no, I want to continue doing this and be devoted to you. Everyone knows that doesn't work. You can't, you can't continue in immorality and be devoted to your spouse in the same way that you can't continue in immorality and be devoted to Christ or devoted to the church. And so the point is, is go after that thing and rid yourself of that stuff. Um, so we're looking at our own marriages. And then finally, in a, uh, the last one is in, in your affections, in thought, in action, and in affections. Um, Song of Solomon is a wonderful thing to go and to read and to retrain your mind to think of your wife the way that, that, that Solomon describes his spouse and his spouse describes him, but you need to guard against receiving any emotional or visual satisfaction from anyone other than your spouse. You need to guard against uh, having a, a desire for anyone else and, and channel, just work on channeling all your desire and all your affection towards one, towards the one that the Lord has given you. He is the greatest man on the planet. She is the greatest woman on the planet. Now that you love her and cherish her, be careful uh, with, with touching, hugging, complimenting anyone else, especially uh, that, that is of the opposite sex and not your spouse. Avoid joking about sexual matters and things like that. Remind your spouse that you're committed to her often or committed to him often. Spend large amounts of time with your spouse. Uh, strive uh, to do all that you can uh, to, to, to do God's will and to please your spouse. Let all your affections be oriented towards your spouse. And again, in Song of Solomon, 
he says over and over, three times there, listed the references, uh, that, that she says uh, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. And again, I think this is first and foremost talking about uh, the, the, the affections that you should have towards your spouse, not awakening that before the appointed time, which is something we talk to our college students about and all that. But, but it's the same thing even within the marriage relationship. You don't want to even awaken things that then become battles after that. Does that make sense? You don't want to awaken affections or feelings or thoughts towards another person other than your spouse that now you have, you have welcomed uh, uh, an ongoing possible battle uh, that doesn't have to be there. Just don't awaken those things and keep your affections solely focused on one. All right, so that was a long time on one, but that's a good one because I, I look at our sex-saturated culture and the evils around us, whether it's pornography or whether it's just the, the worldview in general, that the stuff that we're talking about not only is archaic, but like Richard said in there, this is vile, the things that we're talking about in here to many in the world system. So marriage is... Exclusive and pure. Your next blank is uh, marriage is a permanent relationship. It's a permanent relationship. Again, I got a, a quote here from, from Paul Shirley. Uh, that uh, at the heart of God's design and, and desire for marriage is that is a permanent union between a man and a woman. The union of a man and a woman before God is the deepest and most profound truth of Christian marriage. Uh, period. That's funny. Change that. <laughs> a... Uh, a husband and wife are, are so joined through the covenant of marriage that their spiritual and physical well-being are inextricably linked together by God. There is no horizontal relationship closer or deeper in God's eyes than that of a married couple. Again, in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees come talking to Jesus and, and testing him and saying, okay, so Moses talked about divorce, so obviously, so what, what's the answer? Is, is divorce lawful? And the Lord says, Jesus himself says, so... Speaking of a, a husband and wife, they are no longer two, they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So in the eyes of Christ, in the eyes of God, marriage is a permanent relationship. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. I mean, it's very clear, very simple. That's the way that the Lord explains it. We don't have the option of, of getting out. Oh, that there's no marriage in heaven yes. that will be like the angels. Well, it's also over when your spouse dies. And it's over if your spouse leaves you. Okay. You know, so I mean, it's permanent in the sense of like the way that God lives. It's, it's not optional to, to leave, and it's not optional to divorce. Does that make sense? Yeah. The one condition the Lord gives us is uh, unfaithfulness, immorality. Um, but that's, that's what it means by permanent. Not permanent like eternal, everlasting to the end of the ages sort of thing. Uh, but permanent, because again, I mean, marriage ends the, uh, when your spouse dies. So it's, it's not, death, death brings an end to it. Um, so that's, that's what we mean by permanent. Uh, and actually, that's the, to answer your question, 1 uh, Corinthians 7 talks about that. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 7, you have an unbelieving spouse leaving her believing spouse, or vice versa, a husband leaving his wife or a wife leaving her husband. Uh, and, and Paul says, to the married, I give this instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, who is an unbeliever, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But then he goes on to say, but to the rest I say, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So if you have an unbelieving spouse, like think about that. 
Maybe both of you were not in the Lord, you got married, now you've come to Christ. Well, you don't leave your spouse. You don't go, well, we're, we're unequally yoked, and i got to leave my wife. He's like, no, you stay with your wife. And, and he even says why. Um, and and uh, he says, for the unbelieving, let's see, unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. I mean, think about that. You've come to know Christ. You're made alive. You have the spirit of Christ living within you, and now you're married to this person. What better place could they be than to be wed to someone that knows Christ? You know, and so now your changed life, the things you speak, the way you live and all that will be a sanctifying thing in their life. Lord willing to bring them to the Lord. It's the same thing that first Peter three, uh, one through seven talks about. He says, yet if the unbelieving one uh, leaves, let him alone. The brother or sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know a wife, whether you'll be able to save her husband, your husband, or how do you know a husband, whether you'll be able to, to save your wife. And again, I think that's a reflection of what the Lord talks about in Romans twelve eighteen. That impos- as if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So, if your spouse does not want to leave you, if they're blessed by you and blessed by what Christ is doing in you, then that's a wonderful thing. Keep living like Christ in front of them. Love them. Lay down your life for them. Submit to them. Be an example of Christ. Like First Peter three says, live in you know wives. Uh, uh, live uh, like Sarah and peace, um, gentle and quiet spirit. And Lord willing, th- through your testimony, your husband will come to Christ. And, and husbands, likewise, three seven, live with your wife in an understanding way. Treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of life, even though she's not acting like it and not possibly one of those. And you do that so that your prayers aren't hindered. This is your devotion to Christ as you love your wife. But like Paul says, if they leave, you can't force them to stay with you. And sometimes that happens. You come to the Lord and your spouse is just not going to, you're a different person and I'm not going to put up with it. And he's saying, if that happens, whoops, then, then you let them leave uh, and be at peace in those cases. But for the Christian, you don't have the option to leave. It's a permanent relationship. Does that make sense? For the Christian, because of how God created it, because of how Christ talks about it, what God has put together, let no man separate. It's a permanent binding relationship. I got to keep moving. Now, letter F, marriage is a passionate relationship. A passionate relationship. Again, Proverbs 5.18 talks about this, being exhilarated with her love. Song of Solomon. Again, go read Song of Solomon. Read it personally and think about your spouse. Read it together with your spouse and talk about it together. It's a wonderful book given to us by the Lord, but it just talks about that in there. It just, hey, I just quoted some stuff from Songs of Solomon 4. Behold, you are beautiful, my darling. You are beautiful. You're altogether beautiful. There's no blemish in you. You've made my heart beat faster, sister, my bride. You've made my heart beat faster. A single glance from your eyes with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love? Again, I mean, this is the way we need to love our spouses, uh, and this is something that should define uh, the marriage relationship. So that is uh, um, the, the, the um, what do we call that? The, not principles, the, uh, the relationship, yeah, the principles of the relationship of marriage. The purpose of marriage is second. Uh, number two, the fundamental purpose of marriage. Uh, letter A, marriage provides an opportunity for unique companionship. This is why it was created. God made all the animals, uh, he had Adam name all the animals, and then Adam recognized in that whole process in some way that there was no one for Adam. And so God made a companion, uh, a helper suitable for him. That's what suitable, help, suitable helper means. It means a companion who completes and complements. And that's what your spouse is. That's the way God ordained it. And you got to think about that. For each of us, God has ordained a complement, someone to come alongside and to complement us. 
They're going to be flawed. They're going to have sin, just like you, right? Both of us are going to bring sin to the relationship. Both of of us should also bring a desire for holiness, a desire for godliness, a Christ-likeness that will refine each of us. Um, And so uh, it is a suitable helper for us. And then Genesis 2, 24, uh, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the whole purpose of marriage to have a unique companionship ordained by God for, and all those things we just said, a, a good relationship, a, an exclusive relationship, uh, a passionate relationship, a blessing from the Lord. Letter B, marriage provides the framework for multiplying a godly heritage. It provides the framework, the, the, the foundation for multiplying a godly heritage. Again, if you go look at um, uh, biblically, biblically, uh, you know what what the marriage relationship should be uh the marriage relationship is is it's the beginning of a family if you want to say it that way uh, the family doesn't begin when you have children the family begins when you say i do that's that's the family just started you're a new family uh but from that family uh that the lord uh gives many times uh children and that becomes a a godly heritage. And so it's out of the family that that happens. Again, God told Adam and Eve in Genesis one twenty eight, he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis 9, after the flood, after he wiped out uh, uh, mankind because of sin and in a sense started over, if you want to say it that way, from Noah, he told Noah the same thing, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, Psalm 127, uh, 3 through 5, children are an inheritance from Yahweh. Uh, the fruit of the womb is a reward. It's like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children's of, uh, children of one's youth. Uh, how blessed is the man who's, uh, who fills his quiver with them. Again, it could be the Lord's perfect ordained will for you to be unable to have children. You might have to adopt to have children. You may be unable to have children and not able to adopt, and that's the Lord's will. So it's not saying that a lack of children is not a blessing. It's saying that understand that if the Lord blesses you with children, that is a blessing. And that, you have a responsibility in the family uh, with those children for them to, to, to raise up children that, that know the Lord. Uh, and, and you're faithful to that. Again, not that you can save their souls, but you're pointing them to him. You're disciplining them. You're bringing them back to the path. You're speaking truth in their life. You're living without hypocrisy in front of them so that you become an example uh, and you become the explanation of God's truth to your children. Psalm 78 uh, talks about this. Um, he, he tells the Israelites to recount to the generations the praises of Yahweh, to teach them to their children, uh, set their confidence in God, teach their children not to forget his deeds, to observe his commandments. It's the same thing he told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6. You know, the, these things that I'm teaching you, you know, fear the Lord, or I mean, uh, uh, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, teach these, diligently teach these to your children. And then he says, when you're, when you're lying down, when you're rising up, when you're going in, when you are coming in, going out, you're writing them on the doorposts of your house, you're, you're, you're putting them on the, the, the forefront of your mind, they're written on your hands. In other words, in everything that you do and all that you think and everything that you say and everything that they see, all those things always be talking about Christ, about his word, about what he has said, so that it is just, your, your, your family should be saturated with truth, and you should be the example of, of obedience and submission for your children. Um, in Proverbs 1, uh, 8 through 9, again, the whole Proverbs is Solomon talking to his son, teaching him these things. 
He says, you're, you're, um, hear my son, your father's discipline. Uh, do not abandon your mother's instruction. They are garlands of grace for your head and ornaments about your neck. We want to be able to say that to our children. Don't forget what I said. I mean, yeah, you're going to sin in the process. Yeah, you're going to, along the way, make mistakes. But even in those times, be the example of repentance. Be the example of humility and asking for forgiveness. Be the example for them to see what it looks like to, to fight your sin and to fight your flesh. And then always be speaking truth to them. I mean, we just had a discussion like that with our, one of our little girls. And I was telling her. I was like, um, I said, you know, there's going to be plenty of times where we, we drop the ball as parents. There's going to be plenty of times where you can point out our discrepancies. I mean, that's going to happen. Um, but it doesn't mean that what we're telling you isn't true. It doesn't mean that what we're telling you isn't absolutely right. Because that did not come from our heart and our mind. We're repeating what Christ has said. So if I fail in my example, then I need to repent and get back up and follow him. And you can point that out. That's fine. But, but what I'm telling you, you can't, you can't fight that. Because now you're fighting God. And if you fight against the authority that the Lord has given us as your guardians and the ones that are here to protect your soul, you're not just fighting me, you're fighting him. You know? But you've got to remind them of, of what those things, because, again, the world is, they just let children go in their own way. And, and you see that in our society. So you've got to remind your children of what your role is. Whether or not they respect you, that's on them. But you've got to tell them why they should. And whether or not they obey you, that's on them. But you've got to remind them of why they should. Because there's someone greater who controls all things who has commanded that for children. And, and they have to know that. So at least they know that when they disobey you, their fight is with God. And when they disrespect you, their fight is with God. And when they don't honor you, their fight is with God. Let them see that the fight is with God, not you. You know what I mean? And, 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 but they still need to, to love you, and I mean, you're still trying, striving to love them, but help them to see the bigger picture in all of that. Sorry, I took a, a little sidetrack there. But we're always pointing them to him, and, uh, and marriage provides a framework for a godly heritage. Uh, finally, letter C. I think it's finally, yeah. Uh, marriage provides a platform for ministry and evangelism. Whoa. What was that? <laughs> was that me? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the Lord is like, <laughs> don't mess this up. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Deuteronomy 6. <laughs> Deuteronomy 6 is uh, convicting for any parent, right? I just said it, but uh, that we are to diligently teach our children the words that God is commanding us, right? The words he has revealed to us, you must tell your children. And, and, he, and he basically describes it in, at all times. It doesn't matter where you're going, what you're doing. You're always teaching them his truth. Um, and then the, uh, the Old Testament and New Testament, God uses marriage to describe the relationship between him and his people. Um, and so on top of the fact that marriage itself uh, I'm sorry, the family itself becomes evangelism and ministry. So you think about that. Sometimes we, we, don't, we don't realize that. You know, we think ministry is outside of our family. The, the family itself is ministry. And the family itself becomes the, 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 the platform for learning ministry, uh, for being qualified for ministry. Like if you're going to be an elder, I mean, you, you, the first, one of, the, one of the, 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 the characteristics of an elder or a teacher, the, a pastor of a church, is that he is uh, conducting his household well. He's, he's, he's doing this at home. And again, you got to think about that. If you don't know how to shepherd your wife, 
if you can't guide your, your, your wife and, and, and sanctify her with the water of the word and all the things the Lord calls you that, how in the world are you going to do that with other people that, that, that you don't even have that kind of relationship with? You know, if you can't discipline and instruct your children and raise them up in the, 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 the word of the Lord, then how are you going to do that with other people's children? In other words, on top of the fact that the family is ministry, uh, the family is, is not only how we're tested of whether or not we're able to do ministry outside of the home, but the family is where you build the strength and the, the, the wisdom and the understanding and the ability to minister to others. So if you're failing at home, then you don't have what it takes to, to do ministry outside the home. And again, it doesn't mean that you, you got to get it perfect here before you can go out here because we're always growing. But, but the point is, is, is you, have to, you have to first and foremost uh, be doing what is right uh, in the home. That's, that's the, the one that the Lord has given you and the, the ones that the Lord has given you. Uh, in Exodus 19, um, oh, this is talking about uh, the, the God using marriage to describe a relationship between him and his people. Um, so again, I mean, part of, part of the way that the Lord even identifies what marriage is and helps us to understand marriage is through his relationship with us. But in the Old Testament, uh, the Lord makes Israel into his own possession through covenant. He calls them his people. He is their God. Uh, he calls himself, um, uh, he, he uses the, the, the marriage relationship uh, to talk about his relationship with Israel, that they're wed, that they're married. In fact, when Israel forsook him and went after other idols, it's always described as harlotry. Idolatry and harlotry are synonymous in the Old Testament um, because when uh, Israel worships other gods or goes after other worldly things, uh, they're basically um, uh, acting in unfaithfulness towards their, uh, the, their, their spouse, God, who, who brought them out and made them his own. Um, Hosea is a whole prophecy about the harlotry of Israel, the divorce of Israel and, 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 um, and God, and then their future remarriage. I mean, that's the way he describes the relationship. Uh, in Hosea 2, he, he describes the future, you will be betrothed to me forever. Uh, in Isaiah 62, same thing. He talks about Israel in the future, uh, being brought back to her land, being uh, uh, married to him once again. Um, and uh, just as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you, and the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, your God will rejoice over you. And then, the new, and then Romans 9 through 11 describes, it's a New Testament version to describe that whole relationship uh, with the future of Israel, the re-wedding, if you want to say it that way. And then in the New Testament, marriage uh, describes the relationship between Christ and his bride. So either way, Israel or the church, it's described as a marriage relationship that God has with his people. Israel describes a, 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 an adulterous relationship that will be reconciled and, and redeemed one day in remarriage, if you want to say it that way. And the church is always described as a virgin bride brought to uh, her husband. But either way, uh, the Lord refers to his relationship with the church uh, as a marriage relationship, and I think that helps us to understand it, and it's going to help us when we start talking about the roles of the husband and the wife uh, beginning next week. But finally, at the very end, and I think this is very important, the fundamental pattern of marriage. There are three things, uh, I was going to say verbs, but one of them is not really a verb, that the Lord described, that says in Genesis 2, that, that our pattern for marriage, uh, that this is said over and over, any, any good uh, uh, Christian book on marriage has to include these things because this is the pattern of marriage that God has designed. And it comes from Genesis 2, 18 through 25. So let's read that real quick and we'll talk about these three things. 
It says, then Yahweh God said, it is not good. Man, I don't know what that is. I'm trying not to move. For man to be alone, I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then it says, out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky. And he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh, God, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in that place. And Yahweh, God, fashioned the rib, which he had taken from the man, into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of man. Therefore, because this happened historically, and this is what God made, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Speaking of a lack of of sin. So this statement is the only statement about marriage that God mentions four times in the Bible. Here in Genesis, Matthew 19, Jesus refers to it. Mark 10, again, the same thing. And then in Ephesians 5.31, which uh, is, is what we're, we're looking at in our study. Um, and and uh, this statement is God's all-time master plan for a God-honoring and good marriage. Wayne Mack, in his book, calls it God's blueprint. This is God's blueprint for marriage. Uh, and, and really, it's, it's that last line there, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, A, God's pattern for marriage directs husbands and wives to leave their fathers and mothers. Husbands and wives must leave their fathers and, and mothers. This just means that your relationship to your parents must be radically changed, and you must make the husband and wife relationship your primary, primary and priority relationship. It doesn't mean you ha- abandon your parents or forsake your parents. Again, there's plenty of scripture that tell you to honor your father and mother until the day that you die. You will always be honoring, always be respecting your parents. Uh, it also doesn't mean that you just geographically move. Uh, again, I, I didn't write down who said this, but it was a good quote. that They said, you can leave and still live next door. Or you can move 2,000 miles away and never leave. Do you understand that? It's not physical, geographical. I remember talking to a guy one time who just had a, a misunderstanding of this verse, you know, a misunderstanding of this concept. And they wouldn't tell anyone where they went on their honeymoon because they were trying to leave. You know what I mean? And they didn't tell anyone when they got home because they were trying to leave that relationship. And it was like, again, I get it, but it was, it was a superficial understanding. The whole point is there is a change of relationship. A new family was just formed. You're now a new family recognized by God. There's a oneness there that just wasn't there prior to the, the marriage relationship, the ceremony. And so, again, I mean, you can live next door and completely leave father and mother. Or you can move to the other side of the, the United States or the world and never actually leave. Um, and so, again, it, it, Paul surely says it good in this. I think I put this. No, I left this out. Here's a, a quote from, um, uh, from the, the Christian home. He says, um, let's see. Many marriages. Oh, I did put this down there. Many marriages never enjoy the practical blessings of union because they fail to leave their old manner of life behind. Your allegiance must transfer from the influence, traditions, and expectations of your extended family 
to a new shared life with the one to whom you are now married. That's, I thought, that of all the different ways I heard it expressed, I like that. Your, your, your manner of life that you used to have, you've, you've left that behind. And the influence, the traditions, the expectations that, that you know, this is, this is how we did it in our family. This is how mom and dad did it. This is how we do it in the Irby household. It's like that is now over and we have a new household. It doesn't mean that you don't do Christmas the way you used to do it. But now, but it's my family now joining this family for Christmas. Does that make sense? Still mom and dad, but this is a new family. We've left father and mother and we're a new family. And things, so things radically change. And this is some other good ways to kind of describe it. You have to be more concerned about your spouse's ideas or opinions and practices than that of your parents. You must not be spiritually or emotionally or financially dependent on your parents. Doesn't mean your parents can't help you. Doesn't mean your parents don't give you counsel. But you have a new family that you have to establish as the priority, and, uh, and, and it's, 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 a, it's a different family. Uh, you must eliminate bad attitudes towards your parents. Think about that. If you're still living, uh, constantly fighting with your mom, thinking bad, you know, it's like you, you can still be connected to your family because of animosity. And even that, you, you've got to strive to honor and respect your parents, but you must leave, and, and you have a different uh, family. Uh, you must stop trying to change your spouse simply because your parents don't like something about them. Again, that could be a lack of leaving. You have a, you have a, um, a parent who doesn't like your husband or doesn't like your wife, and, and, and rather than loving your wife and laying down your life for her or submitting to your husband, even though he's flawed and striving to work out that in your family, you're still listening to mom and dad and trying to fix your spouse the way mom and dad want your spouse to be. That's not your mom and dad's, that's not their, their job. Uh, their, their job is to, to let you leave and your job is to leave and cleave. Does that make sense? It's, it's messy sometimes and it's hard sometimes. I always tell young couples that. Think about this. If you've been raised in a godly family, you have a dad who's poured 18 to 25 or even 30 years of his life and wisdom into you. And, I mean, you ought to look at him as the greatest example of Christ and the best role model you could ever imagine. And he's given you all this counsel and advice. And now you're going to be dependent upon this young, naive 18-year-old that's green and barely begun to practice. But that's how it starts. I mean, that's how we started. You, you, and, and, and it doesn't mean you don't, he doesn't get wisdom from your, your, your dad or... You don't get wisdom from your dad still. But even through that wisdom, then you still have to trust the decisions and, 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 and the leadership of your, your new husband, who, like I said, is a rookie, and, and vice versa with the, with the wife. But that's part of how you learn to lay down your life and to submit to your husband. You're submitting to your husband even though he doesn't have the credentials that your dad had. And you're laying down your life for your wife even though you've never practiced that with anyone else before, but you've got to start somewhere. Does that make sense? But then that continues on for a lifetime. Um, and, uh, and, and so, again, part of leaving is transferring that from mom and dad now to this new relationship that is, that is orchestrated by God. Uh, again, now, on the other side, I thought this was some insightful stuff, too. Um, you know, from the, from the married perspective, it's, you can still be concerned about being a good son or daughter, um, but the priority now is being a faithful spouse. Again, I mean, I'm still striving to honor my parents. There's plenty of times where I'm like, I haven't called my mom in forever, and that's wrong, and I need to call her, and I need to love her. And, but, but the priority is, is, my spouse is the priority in my life, over my children, over my parents. The, my spouse is my priority, and, and again, that's part of leaving. 
Um, if you're a parent, I mean, think about this is hard. I, I haven't, I mean, I, I'm already feeling this, but some of you guys can sit here and go, you have no idea, Brian. But, but listen, part of the parent is your goal should be to prepare your child to leave. If you're not preparing your child to leave, if you're preparing them to always be dependent on you and always need your counsel and always need your advice, you are hindering them and you are causing a stumbling block in their life. Now, again, I experientially can't talk about this, <laughs> but you guys, some of you know, and I'm already feeling it because I don't want my kids to leave. I got four little girls I don't ever want to leave. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are just laughing at me, <laughs> but but I get it. You feel it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, children don't need indulgent parents who continually neglect each other. Um, they need parents who will dis- demonstrate how to face and solve problems. Again, that's important. Um, and so, again, preparing your children to leave will actually, uh, and then cultivating common interest between the, the, the husband and the wife, that's actually a blessing for your children. And it gives them a good example of how they're to love their spouse and how they're to, to live towards their spouse. And that's something someone taught us early on, and we've strived to live in our family, uh, for our children to see that, that my wife comes before them 100% of the time. And I still love them so much and will do anything for them. But, but your spouse comes first, and they need to see that. And you don't, you don't want them to think that they come first. Uh, because, like I said, on top of the fact that you're building some sort of need for you in their life, you're also uh, exemplifying for them the opposite of what the Lord has called you to do, which is to lay down your life for your wife and to submit your husband to your husband as Christ does, or as we do to, the church, or to Christ. Letter B. God's pattern for marriage uh, directs the husbands and wives to cleave to one another. So, uh, the husband must leave his father and mother and then cleave to his wife. The word cleave there, that right? Yeah. It means to be fastened together, to cling to or to adhere to, uh, to glue or cement together. Marriage is a permanent commitment to faithfully cleave to one another in selfless, submissive, sacrificial love in the fear of the Lord. I, I just That is what we are striving to do. Uh, Paul Shirley, again, in his little book, says, you are spiritually gorilla glued to your spouse. That's a new way of saying it. You must embrace the covenantal, exclusive, spiritual, physical, and practical union, and you must share every area of your life without holding back. You must recognize... That by God's design, there is no relationship other than your relationship with Christ that is closer than the relationship created through marriage. In fact, marital union joins two souls so closely together that it mirrors the spiritual intimacy of your relationship with Christ. Again, there's some profound things uh, in that statement and profound things in this, uh, this whole matter of cleaving together. But again... You know, in many ways, you can look at the marriage relationship, and there's nothing that describes more uh, what it means to be a Christian than the marriage. I mean, that, that, that our former manner of life is set aside. The old man is dead. Who I once was no longer exists, and now I am 
I am adhered to Christ through his spirit being within me and I'm clinging to Christ and I'm striving to be completely dependent upon Christ and to go to Christ for all things and to, and to live in submission and obedience to Christ. Again, I mean, that, those, are, those are marital terminologies and that's how we're... Just, so think about that. Just apply that concept to your marriage relationship. You know, who you were before you met your wife, that person is dead. And you are now one with her or vice versa with your spouse. And again, I don't want to play it out beyond the words of Scripture. But, but when we talk about cleaving, that's what we're talking about. That you are one. And think about that. There is no other relationship outside of your relationship with Christ. We're, we're unified with Christ so that we are one with him as he is one with his father. Go read John 17. It talks about him being us, us being in him, just like he is in his father. And we are united together with him. We are one with God. The only other relationship outside of that. You're never called one with your children. You're never one with your friends. You're one with your spouse. And so there is a, there is a uniqueness even in that. Um, and it's very similar to, so again, if you, the whole leaving and cleaving thing. Think about, think about leaving your former manner of life as a Christian and cleaving to Christ and then apply some of those principles to your marriage. Um, but you're, um, just like we faithfully commit ourselves to Christ, uh, we are faithfully committing ourselves to our spouse and we are striving to share in all things. And I think that leads us to the last one here. The, the, and God's pattern for marriage directs husbands and wives to, I made heard a guy say this one time, and it just helps to remember it, to weave together. And this is talking about the one flesh relationship. So you leave your father and mother, you cleave to your wife, and you weave together. And, and, what, and when we talk about a one flesh relationship, uh, like it says here, it, it is most elemental level, it's talking about sexual relationship and physical union. Again, this is a unique thing that you only have with your spouse, or you should only have with your spouse. And, and Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, when he talks about adultery and immorality, he says, don't you know that if you join yourself to a prostitute, um, uh, to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. So first and foremost, he's saying that, that the sexual union is something that should only be between husband and wife. No one outside of that. And so don't you understand that by doing that with someone that other than your spouse that you are betraying this one flesh relationship that you have with your spouse. But it's much more than just sexual intimacy or sexual union. In fact, this one flesh relationship refers to the goal of experiencing total intimacy and deep union by the total sharing of the total person with one another until death. Again, in his, in his book, Paul Shirley says, marital union requires sharing every area of your life with your spouse. You don't lose your individuality or your personal responsibility for God when you enter into this union, but your spouse does become a part of your identity and your responsibility towards God. Again, think of, like we talked about, the difference between singleness and marriage. I mean, you're still, as a, a, a individual person, responsible uh, before the Lord for all the Lord has commanded you to do, to go out and make disciples, to lay down your life for one another, to, uh, to be patient and kind and gentle, all those things. But now your spouse is intimately wrapped up in a oneness relationship with you in that. So that you can't actually do that if you're not doing that with your spouse and for your spouse. Does that make sense? I can no longer love others if I'm not loving my spouse. I can no longer uh, be gentle and gracious and kind to others. I can no longer live in obedience to God if I'm not living in obedience at home. She is part of that now. 
Um, and, and like we said earlier, part of, part of that is ministry at home. Part of that is the preparation for ministry outside. But part of that is that we are inseparably linked now in a oneness union that we share all things, including uh, the ways that we live towards the Lord. Husband and wife should share everything with one another. You share your bodies. You share your possessions. You share your insights, your problems, your aspirations, your sufferings, your abilities. It's, it's a total union of all things. My sin struggles now become my wife's sin struggles. You understand that? You know that. I mean, anyone that's married. And her sin struggles become my sin struggles. She's fighting personally, and she's striving to be dependent on him. I'm part of that fight now, and there's no way out of that. And I I'm, 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 I'm want to be a part of that fight. Uh, her, her fears, her anxieties become part of my walk with the Lord now. There's, there's a oneness in all things. There's no secrecy. There's no hiddenness. There shouldn't be. We're striving for unity in all things. Husbands and wives should be concerned, just as concerned about the other's needs as they are about their own needs. Again, Ephesians talks about that. And we'll talk more about that very soon. Husbands and wives should manifest this one flesh concept uh, practically, tangibly, uh, in, in demonstrable ways. It's not an abstract concept or a spiritual reality. Like, we're one. We're one together. It's everything about you is one. You should share everything. You know, we, we've talked to couples before that don't share bank accounts or they don't share, you know, they, they have their own me time. And it's like, you've got to eliminate that stuff. You share all things. Now, again, I mean, there could be, you know, you could have a business account for something. We're not talking like that. We're talking about, like, there shouldn't be secret compartmental aspects of your life that are, that are out of bounds for your wife, you know? Share passwords. Share, share, let, let her know that there's no hiddenness. There's full transparency. There's full unity here. That she can examine your intentions and your thoughts. And there's nothing out of bounds. There's nothing you can't talk about. There's nothing she can't explore. There's nothing that, that is personal and outside of, of, of the reach of the other person. Because you're one. Does that make sense? Like that's what you're striving for in the oneness relationship. Um, it's, it's unity with diversity. I mean, you're still unique. You're still, again, accountable for the Lord. You have different personalities. You have different giftednesses that make you suitable for one another and, and, and each other's perfect uh, counterpart and all of that. But there's a oneness in the relationship. And again, in, in all things. Um, and, and just like our intimacy with Christ, sin is always what destroys this one flesh unity and, and intimacy uh, that, that we need in our marriage. But repentance uh, and, and reconciliation is the thing that restores trust and restores that union. Um, and, and again, I mean, so you, you're striving in this oneness. Like I said, I mean, you have the physical oneness, the, the intimacy part of this, but then there's honesty and transparency and humility uh, and, and not covering up. Um, so Again, I mean, we talk about this all the time in our home. We talk about this with our girls. Kenzie and I talk about this. I mean, you need to be confessing your sins to one another. You should always be asking for forgiveness and always be granting forgiveness. You always have to be mortifying selfishness and pride because those things destroy everything, including your marriage and your family relationships. And striving to live lives of holiness and righteousness and transparency before the Lord because, again, when you're doing that, that's what's going to cause you to have holiness and righteousness and transparency in the home. You know? So, again, I mean, if you're striving as a godly man to live in a godly way, then that will reflect in your leadership at home and vice versa. If you're striving to be a godly woman before the Lord, then that's going to be reflected in your character and the way that you treat your husband. Uh, the, 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 you're striving after Christ, but then in all things, you're wed together in this one relationship. Um, 
let me end with this quote, again, from Paul Shirley. Uh, you can tell I like this guy. And the reason I'm quoting him a lot, too, is because I'm, I'm thinking that this is a book I would want people to read as they're reading through this. But he says, there are literally thousands of books that tell you all the tips and the tricks and the secrets to a well-maintained marriage. According to Paul, you can throw most of them straight into the trash. Date nights, marriage journals, intimacy tips, and psychological techniques cannot sustain your marriage. The most important technique for marital faithfulness is not a technique at all. It is simple submission. The husband and wives maintain marital union by submitting their lives to the Spirit and submitting their roles in marriage to God's design. And if you want to work on the ways or on ways to improve your marriage, then you must begin with humble, faith-filled submission to your role. And everything else required for a healthy marriage is just growing as Christians together. That's the magic of it. You submit to Christ. You trust His design. You submit to what He says about your roles. And then just strive after Christ. That's what's going to cause you to have a great marriage. This is why the New Testament focuses on your growth and sanctification rather than tips and tricks for marriage. If, you're, if you honor your role in marriage and honor Christ with your life, your union will be well-maintained. And so again, that's why we said last week, that's why you start with the foundations of you've got to be born again, you've got to be a part of the church, you've got to be walking in holiness, and you must be an example of submission. Because that right there is going to be the foundation for a godly marriage. Um, and so next week, we will jump right into that with the roles of the husband and then the roles or the roles of the wife, the roles of the husband. Um, but any questions, concerns? If you want to try the homework out, it's great stuff. Uh, there's, there's two great, um, uh, you know, again, pride destroys any relationship. And so Stuart Scott has these sermons on pride and humility, and they're great to, to assess and to talk about. Um, and then go on a date with your wife this week and talk about that. Are we leaving? Are we cleaving? Are we weaving? And, uh, <laughs> and examine those things. All right. Let me pray for us. Lord.